In our series entitled Explain That, uh, we are going to, to answer a unique question today, and that is this. How did Christianity experience so much explosive growth in its beginning, and, and how do you know that Jesus Christ rose from the, gra- the grave after his crucifixion? Explain that. If you're new with us on this series, we, this is an apologetic series. This is a series trying to deal with the tough, challenging questions that we face when people were trying to share our faith. And I'm assuming you're trying to share your faith with, with people because that's what our mission is, to be sharing our faith with people. And there's a lot of questions and a lot of skepticism. You know, one of the things, let me just make a little commercial here, not commercial, but an editorial on this kind of skepticism. You know, part of skepticism is a commitment to perfection. And it's a wrong assumption. You know, like everything has to be perfect. Like you prayed for people and, you know, they died. But I also prayed for people and they were healed, okay? But because it wasn't perfect, I'm skeptical. Or, or, um, you know, like they say, well, we're learning a lot more than, about physics than Isaac Newton ever knew. True, but Isaac Newton got us to the moon. Okay, so it wasn't like, like it was incomplete, but we got this, we got this everything's got to be perfect in the kingdom of God. And the, the, the church is never perfect, and, but everything has to be perfect in the church, and everything has to be perfect in, in the gospels, and everything has to be perfect in, in, in ministry, and, and uh, you know, what about this, and what about that? And, and as I said, the answers are there, and when, when it comes to the defense of our faith, it, it, the evidence is there. It's just not always two plus two equals four. It's e, 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 e equals MC squared. It's complex algebra problems. But we land with truth that, that uh, we have logical and reasonable reasons why we do and, and, and believe what we do. Explain that came from a challenge to our youth pastor trying to share his faith with somebody on a plane with me. And the guy laid out one of the questions we've already addressed. And then after he said that, he said, explain that. So we, we honored that skeptic and that atheist by, by basically titling our sermon after him. And, uh, you know, many times, I want to talk a little bit about early church history, if I can, without boring you. How many people hate history? Come on, it's okay. All right, okay. How many people love history because I'm your pastor? All right, very good, very good. Many times in, in secular books dealing with church history, historians will, will state that that Christianity uh, or, or Christians were really a struggling little sect by the time that Emperor Constantine took the throne of Rome in 303 AD. And because his mother was a Christian and he won a great battle where he saw a sign in the heavens of a cross and he declared his victory because of the sign he saw, uh, that because of his influence, basically Christianity was forced now upon the population, and by coercion, by coercion, eventually in 100 years, kind of Christianity became, you know, the, the religion of the day in the Roman Empire. It didn't quite happen that fast. It happened really under a guy named Justinian in the early 6th century. But, uh, but Constantine did uh, pass an edict called the Edict of Milan, or was an Edict of Tolerance, so that he shut down all the persecution of the church and he allowed Christians to function with a clear conscience. In that is that he was actually very favorable to the church. Whether he was a Christian or not, there's a lot of debate on that. I want to get into that. But one of the interesting things, just to show you that this, this statement that kind of, it, because of emperor kind of pushed Christianity forward, 
and how that's probably not true at all was what happened in 323. What happened in 323 was really the first council of bishops coming together officially where the Roman emperor actually was involved. He, he listened to the discussions. And it was called the, the, Nicene, the Nicene Gathering. And in that, uh, when they got together, they created what you know today as the Nicene Creed, which are quoted in many traditional churches, dealing with the nature of who Christ is, that he was always God, he was fully man, but he was also fully God, and he always existed with the Father. And that was a great discussion because there was a heresy in the early church called Arianism that Jesus was created. Actually, it's the root system, a belief system of some of you may know the Jehovah Witness particular movement. And, uh, and, and that particular doctrine was being really challenged by a I mean, presented by a, a bishop by the name of Arius. That's why I call it Arianism. And so the church brought together as a council. Now, why was the emperor so concerned about that? He was so concerned about that because this doctrine was ready to divide his empire in half. So if we're just a little sect of people, just a kind of a squandering little group of Christians hiding in a cave or someone's house, and they're having a doctrinal dispute, it's not going to affect the empire. But this doctrinal dispute was going to affect the Roman Empire. So Constantine, he, he sat on the kind of the chairman of this particular council, the Nicene Council, and he listened to these theological debates. And the church refuted Arius' teachings as heretical and renounced it. And it uh, doesn't mean Arius was a bad guy. They just called, they called it the way it was in those days. And, uh, and, and came up with what we know today as the Nicene Creed. So let's talk about what was it about these Christians? Why was Christianity so spiritually explosive in the first century? The thing that we have to agree with, all of us, whether you're a skeptic, an atheist, an agnostic, is that the church exists today. You can't stop it. It's everywhere you turn. It's all over the world. They can't stop it even in places like Iran or Afghanistan and, and and I'll just tell you right now, in Kabul, we have, we have a church in Kabul with 300-plus believers. 20 years ago, they used to kind of meet in you know, fruit markets and share scriptures as they were handing each other fruit. But more and more Afghans are getting saved. More and more Iranians are getting saved all the time. We have a refugee church of 100 Iranians in Hamburg, Germany. God's just moving by the power of his spirit. You can't stop the church. It's present everywhere you turn whether it's huge like in America or South America or, or in houses and caves around the world, the church exists. It's like, like bumping into it like a pinball machine. You just can't escape the presence of the church. Well, how did it get here? Well, let me give you just a few natural things that took place because there's an interesting scripture in Galatians 4.4. 4. It says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. In other words, God uses timing in world events to bring about his purpose. Classic example of that is the Gutenberg Press, okay, where we got the printed word. That came out at the same time as the Reformation came out, and the two joined together, so the Bible was published now in the common language of people. That would never happen before in church history. 1,500 years of church history, it was in Koine Greek, or it was in, it was in uh, uh, Latin, and so they, if they didn't know those two languages, it had to be interpreted and read to them. And, uh, but now I can read it in my own language. 
And so the, the printing press allowed that to take place. Everyone had Bibles, and we became Protestants, and we became Bible thumpers, and we became people who stood on the word of God. The fullness of time, God used that. Another place where God used it, he's used modern air travel and modern technology. There are times, because of my international ministry to the body of Christ, that you don't know this, that between weekends, when I preach to you, I preach all services, sometimes I've been around the world and back by next Sunday. Where I just, where, where'd you, where were you this last week, Ma? What'd you do Wednesday? I was in Nigeria. Okay, I got back. That's how close the world is. You can fly straight to Atlanta from here, from Atlanta straight to Lagos, and bam, you're there. It's a small world. I could FaceTime missionaries. I, have mission, I do intersecting you know, conversations with missionaries all the time on FaceTime, and we're coaching them and encourage them. You know, what do you do in that office of yours? That's one of the things I do. I encourage leaders face-to-face because I can see them now, just like the Jetsons. How many people, boomers, remember the Jetsons? Yeah. Well, it happened. We are the Jetsons, okay? Okay, so God used that technology to bring the world closer. One of the reasons why terrorism has increased it's because technology has threatened some of these cultures that used to be isolated from the influence of the gospel. And now they're with Western civilization and the culture of the gospel, it's getting confronted and they're very threatened. I heard Benjamin Netanyahu live share on that particular concept. And so, so that's part of the reason why. But there's things that happen when, when the church was birthed that we gotta understand why we exist today. First, Jews, because they had dispersed around the world because of the Assyrian invasion and the Babylonian invasion, uh, Jews, a lot of people don't know this, made up about 7% of the population of the Roman Empire all over the world. And you know, of course, Christianity started in the context of Judaism. It started, of course, Jesus ministering in in, in Nazareth and Jerusalem and in Israel and Palestine and that particular area. And the first believers were were Jews. And and really at the beginning, all those things in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, mostly it's all Jews getting saved and added to the church. It was a Jewish church. It hadn't reached out to the Gentiles yet. They hadn't quite figured out that. And God helped them in Acts chapter 10 with the vision he gave to Peter. And so it spread out from there. But it really, it started with a large population of people. So that's why Paul goes to the synagogue when he preaches. There's a number of reasons why he did. Because first, he was giving the Jewish people first right of refusal, learning real, using real estate language to present the gospel. For it's the power of God to salvation, he said in Romans chapter one, to all who believe, first, to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Okay, so he gave them, this is a covenant God wants to make with you. This is the Messiah that was promised hundreds of years ago in the Old Testament, and he's now alive. He's now been revealed to us as the person of Jesus who died for you, rose again from the dead, and now you have an opportunity to embrace the Messiah you've hoped for. Okay, that was one reason, but, but what people don't know is there was a strategy to that because in the Roman Empire, also in the fullness of time, there was a whole movement of burned out, skeptical Greeks and Gentiles who were burned out on polytheism and idolatry and mythology, and they were hanging around synagogues wanting answers. They weren't necessarily fully proselytized into Judaism, 
but they were called God-fearers, and that's where they were hanging out. So Paul going to a synagogue would be like me in the 60s going to a coffee shop where everyone was a bunch of philosophers, okay? And I'm, I'm going to talk about Jesus as part of that philosophy because that's where the seekers are hanging out. So there was an evangelism strategy. Come on, how many people want to go fishing where everyone's saying no one's biting? Okay, there's no fish biting. Let's go to a place where people say the fish really bite there. And they were biting at the synagogue, and that's why Paul went to that. They were hanging out. You notice the stories in the book of Acts. He has a few Jews that believe, and he's got some believing Gentiles that follow him out, and all of a sudden, a church is formed. Great strategy. I can see Paul working with his team. So what we're going to do, we're going to hang around that synagogue for about five or six weeks. They are going to kick me out. Okay, but when we do, we got some converts and we got some Gentiles been hanging around the fringes there. We'll form our first church plant team with them. That was the strategy. And of course, that happened all over the Roman Empire. The The other thing that took place was this thing called Pax Romana. Pax Romana means Roman peace. Roman peace means that from Jerusalem all the way to Britain, there was peaceful transition of travel from city to city. That may not mean much to you in the day you live, but in those days, it wasn't like we're the nation of this. We're a nation of city-states, and the cities were at war with each other. So travel from point A to point B was very difficult. I, I, we went on our 40th anniversary and we, and we visited on a cruise about seven countries and one was Olympia, Greece where the Olympics were, were uh, per, you know, held for 1,200 years. And uh, what I didn't know, I didn't know this, is that the, the games were originally designed to settle war disputes. And so the, all these athletes would come together and do four events that were tied to war. Running, throwing, jumping, and wrestling. And every athlete had to do that. I mean, he had to run a marathon. He had to wrestle. He had to throw a discus or a javelin. He had to do warfare things. And when my athlete beat your athlete, then we could settle down to have some peace terms about our conflict that we had. It was to settle wars between city states. But when Rome conquered everybody, (laughs) that was all gone. No one fights against us. Everyone behave yourselves. Okay, we'll let you kind of have your own little culture, but we're in charge. And so you can say that's negative, but God used it because you could travel on the Appian Way all the way from the Middle East to Britain and preach the gospel because God designed a way for the word to get around the world. So when he said, go therefore to all nations, that was an easily done thing because of what took place in human history. Am I boring you yet? No, all right, here we go, the apologists. There's another reason why we have church day. This just didn't get here, by the way. Paul, what apologists? These were guys, remember the, the early church was made up of slaves. They were made up of children, made up of women, made up of a few men, and it was a straggly army at the beginning. That's why Paul said, you see your calling that not many noble, not many mighty, not many wise are called. Now, what happened in the second century, though, is that these apologists rose up, men like Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and others, who actually began to write basically a defense of the Christian faith to stop the emperors from persecuting to the Caesars themselves. Okay, and so what happened is that all of a sudden the gospel started entering into the intellectual class, 
And all of a sudden, the intellect started getting saved and started adding to the, to, to, you know, to the, to the church. Now, Paul said, all those of Caesar's household salute you when he was in prison because he was ministering to people in Caesar's household. He was winning people to Christ out of Caesar's own family. Okay, but it really grew in the second century. That helped this thing begin to roll. One of the biggest reasons, though, and I think it's a challenge to all of us even today, was their love and their concern. Between Constantine and another guy named Theodosius in the fourth century was a really what they call an emperor that was not a good guy. His name was Justin the Apostate. How would you like to be called Bob the Apostate or Jim the Apostate? Okay, basically Bob the Backslider. Okay, what he did, he started erasing everything that Constantine did, and he wanted to return Rome back to its heathenism. He wanted to kick back against Christianity. But he wrote this. He said, atheism, and that's what they called Christians in those days. You were an atheist. Say to the person next to you, you're a good-looking atheist. All right, very good. Good-looking atheist. Atheism has been advanced through the loving service, and he started naming all the things that Christians did in loving people. And their love and concern for their neighbor, rocked the Roman Empire, that an emperor says, man, they're, they're, these atheists love and concern, I mean, I can't stop it. I can't stop it. And then, of course, then we have the whole issue of persecution. Now, a lot of you have seen pictures of a bunch of people in white robes on the floor of the Colosseum with a bunch of lions tearing them up or going to tear them up. Have people seen, seen pictures like that? You know, I've been to the Colosseum twice, both tours, they said there's no record in Roman history of Christians ever brought to the Colosseum. So it looks good on a you know, track and stuff, but it probably didn't happen. That doesn't mean they didn't get thrown in the circus, but there were other stadiums by which that took place. But that really didn't start taking place until about 200 years after Christ under a guy named Diocletian where it really got heated up. It got heated up in spots and places, but, but Christianity for a while hid under Judaism and it kind of hid as like a sect of, of, of Judaism and the Romans left it alone. But the problem, the problem with the Christians is that they were very excited about what they believed. And because they were really excited and they had a mission to actually preach and proclaim it, they came out from under hiding and they were making proclamations all over the world. The Jews were not proselytizing, they were just reproducing. The Christians were proselytizing. They were declaring there is a king and he's not Caesar, he's Jesus, okay? That was causing a problem. They were very excited about it. They were incredibly loyal. Emperors actually wrote about the loyalty of church members to their leaders. I mean, this was an army and they were proclaiming and, and so they had to start putting persecution. The problem when they persecuted the Christians, people in Rome began to honor them because of their courage and their love and their nobility. And so you put all these things together, all of a sudden there's just this whole movement in history why we are here. But let's go down here to four basic things I wanna talk about. The church was ignited by the event. The event. You know, what, what event are you, are, you, are you talking about? I'm talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting that uh, Mahatma Gandhi was a famous leader in India. He made this statement. 
He says, I've never been influenced in a historical Jesus. I've never, excuse me, I've never been interested in a historical Jesus. I should not care if it were even proved by someone that, that, that the man Jesus ever lived. I don't, I don't care if he ever lived. And that what was narrated in the Gospels was really the figment of a, a writer's imagination. For the Sermon on the Mount would still be true for me. He said, well, it's kind of a wonderful statement, but it's really not a wonderful statement because what he says, I don't care if Jesus is a fictitious person. I really like the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount. But what he's reflecting is really what is true to a lot of people uh, who live in our culture today, and, and that is this. What people are, are enthralled with what Jesus said, but not who Jesus was. The early church was taken up with who Jesus was. And they would look at a gospel that's about what Jesus said only as another gospel. It was the Christianity was about who Jesus was. Yes, it was about what he said in the context of who he was. But it was very important. He was who he said he was. Let's look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two. The church's birth. The Holy Spirit has fallen out on these people. Thousands of people are gathered. They've seen a manifestation that took place with these apostles. And Peter steps out of the crowd and he says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. I'll put a little drama into this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Now notice this. He's always talking about, you did a lot of miracles and you all witnessed it. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the divine plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, you, you hung him on a cross, but God planned it out. You crucified. That's kind of a nice, user-friendly, warm thing. You crucified God's messenger. You crucified God's son. You crucified God. And killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice what happened. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What do you think Peter's message is? It's about who Jesus is, okay? It's not about necessarily, you know, his Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount. We need to live by the Sermon on the Mount. But that sermon was about who he is. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, declares an early church creed or a public statement of faith on Jesus, probably written, this is probably written about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Very basic, very basic. Now, of course, this this early creed, this statement that Paul makes, really makes Christianity unique. Unique in what way? Well, I think Bruce Shelley, who's a church historian, says it's best. He said, Christianity is the only major religion to have at its central event the humiliation of its God. You see, the weakness of the gospel is the power of the gospel. This is what we got to understand. The weakness is his power. You see, I can now identify with Jesus because he 
has walked in my shoes. He has suffered injustice as I have suffered injustice. He has gone through pain as I've gone through pain. He's had his heart broken like I've had my heart broken. Not only that, I can, I can identify with this guy because he seems not to be about himself. He seems to be for me. And I'm drawn to this. But not only that, in his weakness, just like I am weak, he overcame that weakness by the power of the power of the presence of God in his life. He was raised from the dead. I want to get a hold of this thing. But it's the only religion where, you know, the leader's not just caught up in a whirlwind or, you know, laid in some holy estate for 20 days. I went to one particular Eastern cult when I was a deceived person. They said he was divine because he didn't decay for 20 days. I don't know if he had formaldehyde or something on him, but, you know. But the issue is this, is that Jesus suffered humiliation. It's the only religion in the world where his leaders are humiliated as a criminal. But then, of course, he's raised by the power of the Spirit. He's raised from the dead. Christianity hangs on the fact of the resurrection. It hangs on it. The early church was ignited by this reality. Lee Strobel says this. I went to a psychologist, or excuse me, I think, I'm going to give you the next quote here. I went ahead of myself. I think fundamentally the question of whether or not Christianity makes sense, whether it withstands scrutiny, whether the evidence supports it or hurts it, always comes down to the resurrection. That is what we hang our faith on. Everything we sing about today, everything we're experiencing today is a result of the resurrection. Strobel also went on to say this. I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claim to see Jesus after he died, it was just a hallucination. He said, my psychologist friend, he said hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have the same hallucination, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. <laughs> now, I'm going to skip the usual historical, traditional uh, things about defending the faith on why the, the logical stuff, the empty tomb, the Roman seal, the transferred lives of the, the apostles, the no one challenging them when they preach the gospel, and, and so on and so forth, changing the, the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, and all these other things, the, the ordinances of the t- table of the Lord and baptism and everything else, because those are great things, and I'll include, I'm actually putting together a discipleship book to use one-on-one with people to help them find these answers. They'll be in that, but I want to focus today on the supernatural natural response, the supernatural response to modern skepticism that needs to take place, I believe. Because the second thing that took place is the church was empowered by the presence of Jesus himself. Now, Jesus was just not known to be a teacher. And if you find even secular people who wrote about Jesus, contemporary with his time, just didn't mention what he taught but they mention what he did miraculously. There's as much truth in what Jesus did as in what Jesus taught. Jesus told the Sadducees, the Sadducees was a Jewish sect that didn't believe in life after death and they didn't believe in in angels and those types of things or the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. little seminary humor. But he said, you err not knowing the scriptures 
or the power of God. Luke said this in Acts 1.1, the former thing I wrote you in the book of Luke was all that Jesus began to teach and to do. So it's, it's important that we understand Jesus was a doer by the power of the Spirit. So Peter is preaching to a bunch of Italians. And he says to them, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did. Come on, it's not just about what he said, it's also about what he did. Now, Marcus Borg, he, he wrote this. Jesus was known, he was known for doing mighty deeds, according to Josephus. Now, who was Josephus? He was a Jewish general in the great revolt against Rome in 66 AD. He was raised as a Pharisee. He actually studied for a while in Rome, was very impressed with Roman culture, went back to Rome, found himself in a revolution, found himself you know, posing Rome as a general in the Jewish army, was captured, but wasn't, he wasn't executed. He was, he was held by the Roman army and Titus to actually write a history of the Jewish people. Josephus said this about Jesus. He said he was known for doing mighty deeds. Now, there are some arguments that people say that the New Testament was written in the second century. The things that it was writing about was based on legend in the first century. Josephus is a contemporary of the church that was birthed and of Jesus. And he said Jesus was known in our land and our people who did mighty deeds. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian wrote about Jesus near the end of the first century. The Gospels agree. They not only report many stories of spectacular deeds done by Jesus, but also that crowds flocked to him because of his reputation as a healer. Now, but that power that Jesus possessed that was recognized both secularly and in the church and among the Jews was to be transferred to his followers. Jesus said this in John 14. I'm gonna throw a lot of scripture at you. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells. I'm gonna use some modern vernacular. He's hanging out with you, and he will be in you. So Jesus said, I'm gonna be in you when I'm right now with you. That's pretty powerful. Jesus will be in me what he was with the disciples. That's the whole thing about the Holy Spirit. You're not living, you know, there's not some good old days back then. You are living in the good old days. You got Jesus in you. Come on. He goes on. He goes on and say this. Okay, that's good. We got, we got the scripture again in case you didn't get it the last time. Here we go. Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Now, the power of God is for the purpose of two things. Why? Jesus said, you gotta hang out in Jerusalem until you're empowered by the Holy Spirit because how many people know that we need God's help to do God's will? Well, we need strength and we need gifting and we need money and we need guidance and we need protection and we need health and we need 
you know, training, we need change, and I mean, restoration. I mean, we can name a hundred things that we need from God to be able to do what he's called us to do. Okay, so we need the power of God. Everyone said amen to that great point. Amen. Okay. But we also, we, it's also to validate the message that we speak. And this is what happened when they got the power. It says in Acts 2.43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So the presence of Jesus in the first century church validated the testimony of the early Christians. Signs point to something. So he was affirming their message. You know, we, we have a lot of political campaign, you know, things going on in television and stuff, you know, and I, you know, when the, the commercial's done, you know, I am, I am Joe Smith. I, I affirm this message. I approve this message. Okay, I do this. Well, that's what Jesus is doing with our preaching. Well, there's Jesus. He died for you and rose again from the dead. Let's pray for the sick. People get healed. Jesus is saying, I approve this message. That's what he's doing. I approve this message. He's not approving the instrument. He's approving the message. This is the big trouble we had in church history. We think the messenger and the message are the same. They're not. The messenger and the power are the same. They're not. God's approving not me. It's the message. It's the message. I approve this commercial. Of course, I love, I love, I love what people say. I, I, I get tickled on commercials and what people say. I like when people say to me, you know, Bob, I want you to know I'm really real. And I feel like saying back to him, you know, that's so good. I, I kind of like being a hypocrite. <laughs> I, I kind of like being dishonest and phony and a real candidate with integrity, which means the other one doesn't have integrity. You know, it's a, you know so, so it's character assassination instead of dealing with principles and philosophy. Oh, I'll get off that soapbox. Here we go. Here's some, here's some confirmations. There's five supernatural confirmations that shows us the power and the present reality of the res- resurrection. The first, very interesting. I bring this up. The miracle of actually speaking in tongues. Now, here's an interesting scripture. This Jesus, this is what Peter's saying to the same crowd as soon as the church is birthed. This Jesus, God raised up, and of, of that we are all witnesses. Now notice this. Notice this. Being therefore, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, one of the things that I've seen, and I've read a lot of apologetic material, that I've never seen anybody use is the gift of speaking in tongues, so a supernatural language and prayer that God will give a believer, he, that that is evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. I've, and I think because many of them believe that those things ceased at the first century or when the Bible came, they don't use that as a tool. But Peter is saying... The reason why you can know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, he just poured out what you just witnessed, is what you're seeing and hearing. What were they hearing? They were hearing 120 disciples speaking in other languages than Hebrew or Aramaic from the language of the nation they came from. And they were glorifying God in a known language that they knew. And they knew they were Galileans, and they were speaking with a perfect accent. Now, throughout church history, this has happened over and over and over again. 
At the beginning of the 20th century, there was a Pentecostal movement and a, a revival that really started in Topeka, Kansas, in the United States, and kind of rolled over to other places like Azusa Street in Los Angeles. But in 1900, on a New Year's Eve night, there was a Bible college student by the name of Agnes Osmond. And Agnes asked her Bible college teacher, would you lay hands on me that I would receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit? I mean, she was a Holy Ghost lady, loved Jesus, but she wanted more. Everyone say more. We all want more. And so they laid hands on her, and she started speaking in another language. Now, they say that she spoke in Chinese. And they took pictures of Chinese figuring uh, letters that she actually wrote out in Chinese. And then at times, other Bible college students were getting filled with the Spirit like that and started manifesting the same thing. Some of them like, could only like, write in French. They were like writing in French. So they were actually writing in foreign languages that they didn't know. I mean, do-do-do-do-do-do-do. It's, it's, it's cool stuff. At the Azusa Revival, there was a teenager by the name of Kathleen Scott. And the Azusa Revival had about three or four meetings a day. And in between meetings, there was a prayer meeting in a place called the Upper Room. And, uh, you know, so this guy came into the delivery stable they used for a church, and no one's in there, but he hears everybody upstairs, so he walks up the staircase, because they were up in the upper room and praying, and then someone would ring a bell, and everyone would kind of usher down for the meeting. Well, when he ushered the bell, he's at the top of the staircase, this girl, Kathleen Scott, she points his finger at him, and she starts speaking in tongues. And uh, he grabs her arm, runs her down the staircase, runs her up to the front of the church, and he says, everybody listen to me. I am a Jew, and I am a professor in a university. And I, what I do is I go to Christian churches to use the sermons of pastors against Christianity. I came here in L.A. under an alias name. No one knows me in this city. This young lady just spoke to me in perfect Hebrew. She told me who I am and what I'm doing here, and I need to repent before God. That's not just a little she wrote a Honda. <laughs> I want a bow tie. A little bit, little bit deeper. I was birthed in a movement at St. Luke's Episcopal Church way back in the 70s that had these types of manifestations all the time. I remember when, when Sue was receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I remember she's kneeling here. Of course, I'm an anxious boyfriend. I want to see her just get the full package and get moving forward as we run ahead to fulfill our destiny. There was a lady a few people down. She broke out speaking in tongues in Spanish. The guy stopped her, says, you speak Spanish? She goes, no, well, this is what you're saying. And he went through the whole dialogue of what she was doing. She was you know, knowing language. That just doesn't happen. That's happened here at City Harvest Church. At, uh, we had a, a brother in our church named Jerry Weber. He's now down in our church plant in Livingston, Cal in Livingston uh, Texas. And uh, Jerry's a good old guy. He was a drug addict for 30 years, hardcore drug addict. And one day, I was brought down to an office down in the basement where J.O. was with his son Randy and him. And I said, Bob, he just wants to get rid of the drugs. He wants to get filled with the Holy Spirit. So we pray over him, and power of God comes on him, and he actually spoke in a language for 45 minutes, and, and you know, Jerry is just a good guy. I mean, I'm just going to say he's a good old boy. He is a good old boy, and he was a janitor at, uh, after that. He never did drugs again, by the way. He was completely delivered from drugs, and uh, 
he, uh, he was a janitor at Clark College, so he worked the graveyard shifts. And so he's there after a few weeks this happened, and he's waxing the floor, and he says, and he starts, I want to pray in this new language. And he's speaking away in tongues, and all of a sudden, one of his fellow workers, who was Latino, says, I didn't know you spoke Spanish. I don't. You were. You were just asking God to give you gifts. Golly, like, like this is not like, like real. Frank Damasio, my mentor and pastor, has preached here a number of times. When he was in the Jesus People Movement, he was in Orange Grove down in San Bernardino. He, he did radical things. They just did like, we're going to get in a car and just go follow the Spirit all night long, you know. It was the early treasure hunt. If you guys know the Bethel language, you know. And he just kind of went and he saw this migrant worker working in Orange Grove. He just walked up and started speaking in tongues at the guy. Guy started speaking Spanish back at Frank. Frank spoke in tongues at him. He spoke back in Spanish. He spoke in tongues at him. Guy dropped on his knees, gave his life to Jesus. <laughs> now, this is not something that you see in textbooks sometimes as part of the evidence of the resurrection, but it's absolute evidence of the resurrection. And so if you have this gift, you have the expression, every time you're in your prayer closet, you are confirming the resurrection of Christ. In a real way. How about the miracle of, of prophetic revelation? If all prophesy, Paul says, and an unbeliever or outsider enters in, he's, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. It's a, it's a little bit more than, thus says the Lord, I love my people. I mean, he's, his heart's being read. He's, his secrets of his heart are being exposed. And so falling on his face, he'll worship God and and declare that God is really among you. You know, I brought in people into this church who have great revelation gifts, and you've seen it like it's a little bit above like kind of normal stuff. It's like a little scary. It's like twilight zoning. It's like, how do they know that stuff? And because there's a gift of revelation in them showing that Jesus has raised from the dead. I was just I was mentioning a pre-service prayer. Hey, we do have prayer, guys, at 9.30 on Sunday. Today that I, I was with lunch with a pastor, a wonderful pastor, it's a wonderful ministry today, and he was, he was talking about, actually he was talking about my mentor Frank DiMazio, who was in a seminar years ago, and how Frank impacted his life he, at this seminar. He was deeply discouraged because of a horrible situation in his church. He was, he was that close to quitting, but he also came close to suicide. And he was in a very, very, very bad place. And, uh, and all of a sudden, Frank says, you know, we're not going to do altar time today, but I do want to say something to a pastor here. And he began to share, it was a detailed description of what he's going through. And he's just saying, basically, God knows where you're at. He's going to help you through this. And he went home to his wife, and he says, I'm going to be okay. Because I know now God knows where I'm at. As long as I know God knows where I'm at, I'm going to get through this. Saved his life. Now, a lot of people say, well, you observe things about the person. They wear a, you know, they got a $500 suit on. Sure, they're going to be a businessman with prosperity, and they got a Rolex, and they got a you know, big, naughty diamond, you know, with a gold ring on it that's worth about 10000 Sure, they're going to, prosperity's on you. Okay, it doesn't take much of a word. Or, you know, or someone's broken, and, you know, they, can, they have tattered clothes. You know, God sees your brokenness. Well, of course, you're, they're broken. But, you know, the prophetic gift doesn't work that way. In my, own, in my own life, I remember going up to Wendell Smith's church in Seattle, and they brought a bunch of people for me to pray over and, and prophesy over. And I prophesied over this guy. He was, like a, was one of the interns, just looked like an all-American hipster. 
And uh, I said, you know, you're going to be in the nation's capital. You're going to be ministering to people of influence and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I left. I didn't know this story. They told me three years later. And they said, that guy thought you were a false prophet. And, uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't know about that we had some problems. And he says, first, he was from London. He was from England. He was there as an intern. His dad was a famous businessman in London. And uh, he was going straight back to London as soon as he was done with the internship. And he just said, this word is completely false. And I'm glad I didn't know about it. I probably psyched out. But what happened about two or three years later, he became the campus pastor of their church plant in Washington, D.C., they start experiencing all those things. So this is a gift, and this is a confirmation of the power of God that changes people. The miracle of healing. Come on, the miracle of healing. Now, I love this about Paul. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. We know Paul is a missionary. We know Paul is a scholar and a theologian. You need to know Paul as a healer. There's just something about, you know, I am healed. God touched me. Lisa, stand up right now. I got this is Lisa. Come on. <clears throat> Keating. Lisa, you're going to shout it out. What happened about two weeks ago? You were diagnosed with what? Well, I have my mammogram. And um, I need to, just a little history. My sister was diagnosed um, seven years ago with breast cancer, and she's, she's um, cancer-free. But so I went in, never had a call back, and within hours I had my results because it wasn't good, and they saw something on the right side. And so, um, you know, referrals and things went flying because they needed to get me in as soon as possible, but they couldn't get me in for 10 days. So that was the longest 10 days. And I had lots of people praying. And um, I went in and uh, they did the mammogram first and they said, we don't see anything. And this is what we saw in the first one. And there's absolutely nothing in the second one. So I know, I know You say, well, that was just a, that's just a coincidence. Try that coincidence without prayer. <laughs> just try that without prayer. Then there's a miracle of exorcism. I know that we don't talk much about exorcism because we live in a world where the middle world of reality of angels and Satan and demons and fallen angels and what Paul called principalities and powers are not a reality to our Western mindset. But they are in many, many pockets of the world. They're an absolute reality. And here's my hypothesis. When God comes with waves of power, because we've allowed mixture and stuff, we are going to see things take place where all of a sudden, like, what was that manifestation? Because when Jesus comes in, Satan has to come out. We were at a youth camp in my earlier years where a rebellious kid with a blind eye was, was miraculously healed at this camp. He was a, he was a rebel. He was a, he was a pill to work with. And so we did this beach walk, you know, so a kid got healed, blind eye. Kids, oh, I'll accept Jesus and big revival. So we're going to have our little nightly beach walk. And our kids are all gathered outside. And all of a sudden, the kid that got healed started squirming in the gravel like a snake. Like, what's that all about? 
When, Satan, when Jesus comes in, guess who gets to come out? Satan. So it's a miracle. But here's the miracle. The miracle is immediate change. The miracle is immediate deliverance. A miracle is when people are set free. There was a, there was a church in Redondo Beach, California, the Jesus People Movement, called Bethel Temple. And this is before the Bethel of Reading. It was Bethel Temple. And they had what was called the 30-second cure. And Look Magazine did a cover story on them because 30,000 heroin addicts were delivered from heroin in this church. Come on, people. Come on, people. And then there's the miracle of transformation. Come on. Paul said these things, which are just powerful. Notice this. Or do you not know? Or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality. I want to just say this little commercial here. It doesn't say that they struggle with same-sex attraction. They're talking about practice homosexuality. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice this. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. I like to just hear testimony right here in the church. Raise your hand, I'm gonna stand you up, and you're gonna say this. I was, in a real simple sentence, subject, verb, okay, direct object, okay, all right. I was a drug addict. I was, you know, a bully. I was, you know, depressed. I was this. And you wanna make that declaration. I wanna hear a few today. Raise your hand. You might do it. Come on, Benny, stand up. Yell, yell out. I was what? I was a druggie. Come on. All right. Look at you today. Okay, simple sentences. Simple sentences. Right back there. Stand up. I was what? Come on. Come on. That's good. Come on. I was that. I was that. This is good. Back there. Come on. Pam? Come on. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. Come on, Jan, stand up. I was sexually immoral. God purified me and cleaned me and set me free. All right, come on. I was. I was. All right, stand up. Stand up. Okay. I was on disability, mentally. Come on, she's been working the last 12 years. Come on. Get, 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 give me one more. Give me one more. Right there. Stand up. Oh, no, you, no, Debbie, I'm going to let you go second. Look what Jesus has done. All right, Debbie, come on. Make a declaration. Lover of alcohol, lived immorally, now I'm set free. All right, one last one back there. You got to get it in. I was an alcoholic, but you're not today. Come on. That's good. Let's stand to our feet right now. Come on.